From the Daily Northwestern, I'm Madison Smith. And I'm Anushuya Thapa. This is The Weekly, a podcast that breaks down our top headlines each week. Here's what's been happening in the headlines. On campus, Luke Figora, University Chief Risk and Compliance Officer, announced that the university does not have direct access to a COVID-19 vaccine supply, leaving most faculty and staff unsure about when they might get vaccinated. Also on campus, Northwestern Counseling and Psychological Services, better known as CAPS, hired Sabahat Latifi, their first ever Muslim counselor. This recent hire comes as a result of student advocates from the Muslim Mental Health Initiative, pushing for more representation in mental health services on campus. However, Latifi is still the only Muslim provider on CAPS' list of over 200 resources. And in city news, Evanston Township High School plans to resume some in-person activities this February. According to an email last Thursday, students will soon have the option to participate in athletics, fine arts, hands-on learning, mindfulness practices, and other activities in person at ETHS. Those are some of our top headlines. Now we're talking with daily staffers to bring you up to speed and dive deeper into some of our biggest news. First up, on campus, Northwestern has reopened its dining halls for student use after the end of Wildcat Wellness. Ten days into this change, however, and some students remain dissatisfied, citing safety concerns. And in Evanston, local medical experts are trying to build trust within historically marginalized communities, as vaccine hesitancy threatens to heighten existing COVID-19 disparities. Why are so many Evanston residents refusing the vaccine? And what do the experts have to say about it? Stay with us to hear directly from the reporters and editors who covered some of the Daily's top stories. When the quarantine period for Wildcat Wellness ended, NU Dining Halls reopened their doors to students for socially distant dine-in services. Though Northwestern's policies are consistent with state guidelines, clusters of students congregating indoors and eating without wearing masks have become a cause for concern. Here to tell us more about this is reporter Joshua Perry. Josh, how exactly has the dining hall experience changed in the past few weeks? Starting on January 18th, the dining halls around campus opened up for in-person service. They are definitely different from last year. Social distancing of six feet per person is required, and students are provided with take-home containers. Lines are all socially distanced. They even set up a tent outside the dining hall to accommodate for People waiting in the cold weather, there's no contact at all with the card readers or any of the dining hall workers. There's movement pathways on the ground. Basically, it's just a very organized system to prevent students from coming into prolonged contact with one another or with the frontline workers at the dining hall. In your conversations with NU students, though, there was some controversy surrounding the reopening, wasn't there? For sure. I've, I've talked to people who have never been happier to enter a Northwestern dining hall. They described it as like a return to normalcy. Uh, they were able to see their friends again. They're able to enjoy the same kind of food that they enjoyed last year. And it felt like things were kind of going back to normal a little bit. On the flip side, though, some people I talked to felt that it was almost too normal and that things were moving too fast in the direction of reopening. So there's some disagreement there, I think, in the student body. What were some of the students saying? Lots of students were very surprised by how 
relaxed the social distancing enforcement seemed to be at a lot of these dining halls. There were complaints on Twitter about how Sargent, you'd see groups of students, like five or six students at a table together, or people going up to the coffee dispensers without their mask on, people congregating in various places. There just seems to be a lot of concern, and perhaps understandably so, because what students are saying, what they're seeing at the dining halls kind of goes in the face of all of the other more stringent guidelines being imposed by the university. Masks are required everywhere on campus, and so a lot of students are just really jarred by the fact that you're allowed to enter a dining hall with upwards of 100, 200 other people and take your mask off to eat. It just doesn't really mesh with the kind of expectations that admin have been setting for student life. And what has NU's response been to these concerns? In a statement from NU Dining, officials said that the dine-in option is completely optional. It is not something that students have to participate in. And it is apparently compliant with the university's guidelines on social distancing and gathering in public spaces. And so for the time being, it's probably going to stay as it is right now. They did say that if programming needs to adapt to changes in circumstances, then it will do so. But there doesn't appear to be any reason, at least a reason that they have recognized at the moment for them to change things. Thank you so much for chatting with us today, Josh. As COVID-19 vaccinations become available to healthcare workers in Evanston, the percentage of frontline healthcare workers choosing to get the vaccine lingered just above 50%. Participation rates have risen since mid-December, but is this indicative of a deeper distrust in the COVID-19 vaccine? Here to tell us more about this is Assistant City Editor Georgia Siemens. Georgia, why are some people so hesitant to take the COVID-19 vaccine? What I took away from the experts and doctors that I talked to was the idea that there is a larger thing at play, which is rational distrust in the medical system because of years of systemic racism in American science and medicine. And what that means is that certain populations, um, BIPOC populations, can be vaccine hesitant. And why did so many frontline healthcare workers decline the vaccine when it first got to North Shore University Health System? I interviewed Dr. Halasumani, who is the chief medical officer at North Shore University Health System. What Dr. Halasumani told me was that in mid to late December, they initially got the vaccine, and their first step was to um, vaccinate the frontline healthcare workers that work at the university health system. And that definition is really broad. So that includes both nurses and doctors and also people who just work in the hospital to assist. All those people needed to get vaccinated first. And so they sent out over 11,000 vaccination tickets, which is a way to sign up to get vaccinated. But they only got about 6,000 workers inoculated from her estimates. And what she said that meant was really people think that the medical system is exempt from identities, and that's not the case. When you're a doctor, you bring your identity and your background with you. And so she talked about how diverse healthcare ecosystems are and how they're seeing the same concerns about the vaccine in their populations that we're also seeing in the greater Evanston and Chicagoland populations. And so that's why the uptake was only about 50%. 
How have local experts like Dr. Halasumani tried to ease this distrust? Something that she said to me that, that really stood out was that information is the antidote to fear. And any sort of fear that people may have, um, it can always be combated with proper information and outreach. Someone else that I interviewed that I think is really important to talk about is I interviewed Dr. Clyde Yancey, who is the chief of cardiology. He's a professor and he's the vice dean for diversity and inclusion at Feinberg School of Medicine um, in Chicago. And what he and I talked about was Northwestern Medicine released a campaign earlier this year called Why I Got Vaccinated, which featured medical professionals of color talking about their perspective and their awareness going into getting vaccinated. And in the video, he says, and I might just read this direct quote here, I'm a black man volunteering in a very willing way to receive the vaccination, in part because this disease has disproportionately impacted people of color, and in part because, as a scientist, I trust the science. And he mentioned to me that people need to be receiving proper messaging about the vaccine that's truthful, but they also need to be receiving it from people they trust, people who look like them, people who speak their languages, and people who they may have even had a connection with in the past. Earlier, you mentioned systemic racism that has led to a distrust in medicine as a whole. You talked to an Evanston resident about this. Can you tell us a little bit more about what they said? This Evanston resident talked about remembering the Tuskegee trials and what that means when we look at American medical history. And when we look at American medical history, what we see is that for generations and for legacies of people, the American medical system has neglected the importance of consent of people of color. Um, They've neglected asking for consent and receiving it. And so this Evanston resident talked about how the doctors had penicillin later on in the Tuskegee trials, but they refused to use it on the hundreds of black men who were subjected to the trials. And that's really important, and I'm very glad that Evanston resident brought that up because it shows the neglectance of consent, which is a critical factor from my research in why some people may be vaccine hesitant. Did you look into any other instances of medical racism that may be causing a distrust in the COVID-19 vaccine? That was something that Dr. Kenzie Cameron brought up to me. She's a research professor in general internal medicine at Feinberg School of Medicine. And what she said, she didn't just call it distrust, but she clarified it as rational distrust. And she cited the Tuskegee trials, as well as the experience of Henrietta Lacks, as reason to believe that this is a rational feeling and it should be treated as such, both by medical professionals and community members in general. So Henrietta Lacks, if if people don't know, was um, a black American woman who passed away and the Johns Hopkins Hospital started using her cervical cancer cells in 1951 after her death um, without her consent. And they used those cells to do medical trials and and experiments and kind of build a a body of research um, because cells are really valuable in medicine uh, to use. But the problem with that is, once again, she didn't consent to it and she never agreed. Um, And that means that a big body of medical knowledge that we have now is thanks to her, but she never consented to it. So I think that's important, and I'm really glad that Dr. Kenzie Cameron brought that up because it shows that it's not just Tuskegee. It's um, it's Henrietta Lacks. It's a history of forced sterilizations in the United States, especially of Black, Latine, Indigenous women. Georgia, thanks so much for speaking with us today. 
From the Daily Northwestern, I'm Madison Smith. And I'm Anusha Thapa. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Weekly. This podcast was reported on by Georgia Siemens, Joshua Perry, Madison Smith, and myself. This episode was produced by both Madison Smith and myself. The audio editor of The Daily is Alex Chun. The digital managing editors are Molly Lubers and Olivia Yarvis. The editor-in-chief is Sneha Day. Thank you.